Greetings and, and welcome everyone. My name is Susan Nicolai and I'm a senior research fellow with the Equity and Social Policy Program at ODI and I'm also a director with the, of research with the EdTech Hub. Um, I'm delighted to be chairing today's discussion on pathways towards an education that leaves no one behind. Evidence has emerged over the last years that have brought the severity of the global learning crisis to the fore. Around half, an estimated 617 million of children and adolescents around the world are unable to reach minimum proficiency levels in reading and mathematics, even though two thirds of them are in school. This gap has, has sparked a global debate on how to improve the quality of education in low and middle income countries. As the COVID pandemic stalls any progress we've made for quality global education, emerging estimates of learning loss make it even more critical that during the remaining period and into recovery, we look to build back better. One year into the pandemic, more than two thirds of the student population, an equivalent of one billion students, still face disruptions to schooling. There's an alarming increase in absolute numbers of children below minimum proficiency levels, um, directly linked to the duration of school closures and the percentage of children um, close to, to this level. And even after children return to schools, learning losses due to school closures could continue to accumulate unless necessary attention and resources have been given to education. Without mitigation programs, um, some losses, some estimates of losses are equivalent to a year's worth of learning. It's crucial for remediation strategies to focus on reducing uh, these detected learning gaps. But in looking forward, it's important to learn from the past. The year 2000 marked the beginning of the Millennium Development Goals, which called for universal primary completion for all boys and girls. The MDG period in earlier years to uh, and in the early years of its successor, the SDGs, saw major gains in education, but it hasn't been true everywhere. Our discussion today is informed by new ODI research on pathways towards quality primary education, improving completion and learning outcomes. This publication takes a political economy lens to mapping pathways towards greater quality education and it looks across 38 geographically, economically, and culturally diverse countries that progressed most in increasing their primary completion rates, and in a few places where this is discernible, improving learning outcomes. As a part of this work, we also reviewed prioritization and education gaps in relation to groups more typically left behind in these 38 countries. Our research and the discussion today take place ahead of the G20 education ministers meetings and aims to examine successful what successful reforms have brought vulnerable children to the forefront of policy implementation. It will take a look at how policies implemented can strengthen access and quality of primary school education and how those policies can capture the multiple disadvantages and reach vulnerable children from left behind groups. To answer some of these questions, I am thrilled to have an esteemed panel joining us. Um, we have Shem Boda, who is the Senior Programs Officer at the Association for the Development of Education in Africa, or ADEA, who has significant experience in policy development support 
education sector analysis and capacity development of national education ministry information systems. He also coordinates a DAIS task force on quality in program quality and program implementation and is the ADEA focal point to the African Union. Next joining us is Rukmini Banerjee, CEO of the Pratham Education Institute. Rukmini has extensive education field experience in program design and implementation in both rural and urban areas across India and globally. She's also led Pratham's research and assessment activities, including the infamous Annual Status of Education Report, or ACER. Um, also joining us is Matt Brassard. He's the Chief of Education of UNICEF's Office of Research in, in, in Achenti. Matt has experience in leading strategy development innovations, evidence, and analytical tools for policy dialogue at country levels. This has involved UNICEF's global education strategy, 2019 to 2030, Every Child Learns, which he helped to coordinate. Jose Manuel um, Rocha, co-author of our research paper, brings 20 years of experience in policy research, human development, poverty and inequality analysis. He works across civil society organizations, governments, and academia. He's previously served as head of research at Save the Children. And finally, Moisa Binat Sarwar is a research fellow at ODI. Moisa brings 12 years of experience in social policy with a focus on the political economy of the design, implementation, and delivery of social protection policies and service delivery in education and health for vulnerable populations in low and middle income countries. Welcome all. There will be an opportunity to ask questions during this webinar. So, as questions emerge, please post these in the events chat just below the video live stream on your web page, and we'll be collecting those, ready to answer during the Q&A segment a little bit later. Um, please also feel free to get involved on Twitter using hashtag education and hashtag leave no one behind alongside at ODI Global. We'll now start off with a presentation of the recent research. Um, over to you, Moisa. Thank you, Susan. Uh, in the next few minutes, I, along with Jose Manuel, co-author of this report, will highlight some of the key points from our research and hope that our overview will serve as an effective draw to get you to read the report. Uh, okay, just making sure that's working. Yeah. So the report has been authored, I should say, initially by Diego uh, Diego Moreno, Olia Homenuchuk, Jose Manuel, Susan Nicolai, and myself. And in this report, we wanted to try and understand two things. The first was to understand what worked to keep children in school, and in doing so, moving beyond enrollment to see what allows completion at the primary school level. And the second was to try and understand this at a multi-level um, school systems analysis of sorts. So moving beyond a focus on either just schools or just teachers, and instead looking at the level of school, the local government, as well as the national government. So we found ourselves having to focus on primary completion rate for which we had data. And as this audience well knows, comparative data on learning outcomes is quite scarce, but we brought that in for some of the countries in our sample that did have this data to begin with. But largely, we began with PCR and then moved into learning outcomes. So 
just uh, briefly, we have 38 countries in our sample, and these are the countries that made the most progress between the years 2000 and 2017, so almost two decades, in improving their completion rates, primary completion rates. It's a ge geographically diverse bunch. We have Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Middle East, North Africa, Latin America, Europe, Central Asia, East Asia, and the Pacific. And they also vary in terms of income levels, ranging from low-income countries, lower-middle-income countries, as well as upper-middle-income countries. Briefly on methods, we used both qualitative and quantitative techniques. And qualitatively, we looked at 500 plus sources of data to build an individual country level profile for each country, which we then fed into a database. And we think this database is a significant contribution of this work. And quantitatively, we explored the trends emerging from the database to see how countries bundle strategies together or how countries seem to be grouping together. And then we tested associations between the completion rate and learning outcomes where data allowed us. So there are, we found that there were four key areas that seem to be foundational in driving progress in PCR. So in countries that showed progress, we first noticed there were three particular features of the political environment. These countries tended to show a very high engagement with international discourse and evidence on education, as well as debates around education on what was important and what wasn't. And sometimes there was an active role that was played by a few donors. Um, and for some countries, debt relief also featured as important. But uh, another feature that stood out was the presence of strong political champions for education. And by this, we mean either politicians who had been elected and were at the executive office level or very vocal ministers of education. We noticed again the trend that has been found in literature that education focus tends to be quite top down in governments and what we classify as an elite level push. And we found limited evidence in the literature that teachers unions or grassroots movements improved completion directly. Secondly, in countries with high progress, we found free primary education to be a common feature, and typically this was well in place by the early 2000s. Over 75% of our sample over this period also registered an increase in the number of private schools, which to us seemed to indicate that maybe the demand for education that was growing was met partly by growth in the private sector. At the school level, we found that countries tended to sequence their strategies. So it, they typically used to begin with introducing or upgrading teacher training, both pre and in-service teacher training. This was a very popular measure across our sample of countries and often consisted of establishing minimum standards for qualification. Typically, teacher training measures took, in place, uh, took place in tandem with curriculum changes, which makes sense if you think about shifts in pedagogy then needing to be needed to be reflected in textbooks and how teaching was done. Once teacher training and curriculum change was underway, countries then began to focus on instituting or upgrading standardized learning assessments for students, i.e. how were students graduating from one class to the next or from primary to secondary. And then once learning assessments for students were underway, countries began to move to instituting school level quality assurance mechanisms. These included things like training administrative and supervisory education staff or assessments of teacher knowledge, often alongside mechanisms to ensure teacher attendance. Finally, we identified a set of strategies that, was, that were explicitly aimed at reducing household barriers to both sending and keeping children in schools. The most frequently employed strategy across our set of countries was investment in infrastructure. This included both expanding the number of schools, but also renovating existing facilities to either build dormitories to allow students to stay, 
or building single-sex bathrooms. The majority of the countries in our sample also instituted school feeding programs quite, quite early on. And in some countries, we noticed the trend that the World Food Program helped start the initiative before countries took over both the expansion and management of the same. Um, countries typically also had adult literacy programs. And, uh, and when they did move towards prioritizing native language, it would often, the focus would be in the first few years of primary education. And I think this is something we can touch on later. Um, I will now hand over to Jose Manuel, who will describe the factors we found most strongly associated with faster progress in PCR. Great, thank you, Moisa. So in the previous analysis, we, we look at the factors associated with faster progress, but independently. In, the, in this next slide, we adopt a more multivariate analysis, so we could control the effect of different variables and assess for statistical significance. So in this analysis, we look at what factors would make countries in our sample outperform others. So what do we find? The first is that countries that started with low level of PCR, P PCR or primary uh, completion rate made faster progress than countries starting at a higher level. And that's probably because their policy strategy was mostly oriented towards increased coverage and the marginal, marginal cost of uh, reaching the excluded children is higher for their countries that started with a much higher PCR. Second, closing gender gaps was key. We found that provision of scholarship for girls attending primary education has one of the most positive and significant association with improvement in PCR after we control by other variables. We also observe faster progress by countries that put in place low targeting enrollment and completion for girls. Third, infrastructure expansion was negatively associated with improvement of learning outcome. This indicates that countries focusing on expanding the educational system issue of um, they look issues of um, uh, education quality, or perhaps sacrifice quality for coverage of school system as they move forward. And fourth, we found that making primary education free was more important than making it compulsory. And finally, we found that changes in teacher training were positively and significantly associated with a faster progress in learning outcome. We look at other association and it's, uh, what we found is, of course, in more detail in the report. Next. I'll just there. So our finding highlight the role of policy sequencing. Countries may trade off between pursuing progress in PCR and learning outcomes, but trade off is not inevitable. This figure illustrate and hold it a second, just, just keep it before only with the blue. Yeah. This figure illustrate the case by showing the association between both. So countries that started with low PCR, this one here highlighted in blue, always experienced low or negative progress in learning outcome. It appears that these countries' pursuit of increased education coverage means they are unable to make improvement in learning outcomes or 
many even experience reversal, as you can see. There is a reason for this. These countries start with very low PCR, less than 50%, really, really low. They have a mountain to climb when it comes to expanding coverage. If progress is rapid, then it is difficult to keep up with quality. But some countries were better at maintaining the quality education, as you can see here on those that are higher up. Next, the story is different for countries with moderate or high PCR at the outset. Some countries were able to advance both PCR and learning outcomes simultaneously. This, for example, shaded in green. Meanwhile, next, meanwhile, a set of countries saw learning outcome worsen while PCR increased. This one highlighted here in, in red. So <clears throat> this diverse range of experience shows that a trade-off between completion and learning is by no means inevitable. Once PCR is moderate or high, because some countries were able to improve both simultaneously, as you can see. Next. And so we also look at government expenditure uh, in some section. And in this graph, we compare expenditure between countries in our sample, those highlighted in orange, with other low and middle income countries, those in blue. And what can we see? Well, countries that made faster progress, the one in orange, more frequently increase expenditure in education as a percentage of GDP. They also more often met the 15-20% target established by the Education 2030 Framework for Action and ratified in Addis Ababa during uh, the FFT uh, conference. And more importantly, this same countries also increase expenditure per student in proportion of GDP. We found that the level of expenditure per student uh, in, in our regression, we then ran this in our regression and found that the, le the, the, the level of expenditure per student at the starting point is significant and positively associated with improvement in learning outcome. So countries had not only to increase expenditure, during the period of time, but needed to have already a good level of expenditure at the starting point. All in all, the evidence is telling us level of investment matters. I pass it back to you. Uh, Great, Marisa. thank you. Um, the our analysis of our analysis of education policies across 38 countries show that governments tend to operate along a hierarchy of priority when it comes to children historically excluded from primary education. So most of the rhetoric, not just in sector plans, but also in existing policies and strategies tended to focus um, on children in rural and remote areas, as you can see in the slide in front of you, that was 80% of our sample, while roughly 60% of our sample seemed to focus on children with disabilities and roughly around 50 to 55% focused on low-income families and around 47 focused on girls. Everyone else was much, much lower. Um, and it seemed to us that most well-evidenced types of exclusion were given priority by governments and the most politicized and in some cases the most powerless and voiceless of groups, for example, children who are orphans, children who are street connected, or, um, were excluded from policy measures. And for the prioritized groups, 
government strategies to bring them within the fold of primary education would typically include geographical targeting of both physical and human resources. In some cases, obviously, this has not been enough. And for some groups, for example, children with disabilities, uh, governments uh, showed commitments related to infrastructure improvement. But this was not followed on by improvements in teacher training so that teachers could adapt material um, for children with different needs. Um, Jose Manuel, I think you need to, could you please mute yourself? Strategies to include girls regarding strategies to promote inclusion of girls included, uh, and the most popular strategy here was curriculum review to incorporate a gender perspective, which was very common. And other common strategies, as we spoke about, was uh, offering scholarships, hiring female teaching staff, and really going at sort of shifting community norms, working with grassroots, NGO, civil society organization, and religious organizations such as churches. Local education champions who promoted girls' education often framed the debate as this is necessary for country level development of human capital, and this is necessary for poverty reduction. I can speak a little bit more on left behind groups at the bottom of the pyramid during the discussion and shine light a bit more on what can be done. But for now, we can conclude the presentation to sort of say that, you know, what we find overall is, as was Emmanuel already said, starting points matter. Countries that start with a low PCR. Um, have largely been uh, enabled to make gains in access and quality at the same time. But if you're at a higher PCR, trade-offs are not inevitable. Political champions matter. Growth in government expenditure and education matters. That No single strategy is enough. And a combination of strategies at each level, school, local, and national, seems to matter. And attention to girls is a very strong association with improvements in PCR, particularly with scholarships. Um, thank you for that. I'm going to hand it back to the chair, Susan. Great. Thank you, Moisa. Thank you, Jose Manuel. Um, as, as you can all see, uh, there's a lot in this paper um, and a lot uh, that we, we tried to look at, both um, across a diversity of countries, um, a diversity of, of kind of strategies for change and reform um, within the education sector and across years. So it is a very macro look. Um, for those who want to dive in more deeply into some of the analysis and some of the examples, um, the paper is available on our website. It, it's now been published and you can take a look. And the panelists have luckily had um, an advance uh, view of it. So, so can also, um, you know, make some of their own um, comments and assessment about it. I'd first like to turn to Shem. Um, and I am wondering if you can talk a little bit um, from the African perspective and based on the research presented now, what, what resonates with you? What kinds of policies have you seen make visible difference in primary education progress uh, across different African countries? And what are some of the challenges in this specific to Africa? Shem, are you there or have we lost you? Aha, uh -huh. looks like we may have lost Shem. Okay, um, I'm going to move on and, and hopefully Shem will join us again and, and we'll come back to him. I'm gonna move on, um, Rukmini, if you could um, 
speak a, a little bit further on this. And, and one of the things that we um, found really challenging and we are looking at this paper is um, around what we were able to look at in terms of progress on, on primary completion rates versus progress on learning outcomes. And, and there's, of course, quite limited data on learning outcomes. I'm wondering if you can, can speak a, a bit um, in terms of the experience in India um, and how that compares elsewhere uh, around this interplay in terms of, of completion and learning and um, what you've seen. Um, over to you, Rukmini. Um, thank you, Susan. Very interesting uh, presentation um, uh, and um, paper uh, to your colleagues. Um, I think that this relationship between uh, primary school uh, completion or primary school uh, continuity uh, and learning outcomes needs a fresh look. As we hopefully will return to uh, schools uh, sometime, hopefully in the near future, I think we are going to have to work really hard on both on the enrollment side as well as on the learning side. And we will have to do it simultaneously. And therefore, studies like yours, which have looked at the relationship uh, of these two important uh, parts of education and have seen uh, you know, time uh, data over time on how these things can link, can really give an informed view of what uh, countries and uh, uh, you know, different contexts need to do. Um, I, I don't know, Susan, if I heard you correctly, but did you call our annual status of education report infamous? Because I'm going to quote uh, from that, that in, in uh, India, we've run this nationally representative, very large sample uh, of uh, a very large sample survey for the last almost 15 years. And so we have uh, either annual or uh, you know every two year data on basic learning outcomes for every rural district in India from 2005 onwards. And what we see is two things. And you know, I'd be curious to hear what uh, your colleagues have to say about it. What we see is that even in 2005, we had very high completion primary school enrollment and primary school completion rates. But the variation across the country in even basic learning outcomes was phenomenal. So you had states like Kerala or Himachal Pradesh who had not just learning outcomes which were higher, but the composition of children, even in fifth grade, who were at different levels of learning, was very different from states which had uh, you know, high completion rates, but the distribution of children, even at the last year of primary school, was very, very bunched to the left, where most kids were still struggling with reading you know, even uh, simple sentences. Now, given that kind of a situation, uh, you know, where we have a very common curriculum framework across the country, very common patterns of expenditure, excepting, you know, um, we have, you know, slightly different uh, variations in teacher salaries. But other than that, I, I think it's very interesting that what has produced these very vast differences. But I think even more interesting is what different states in India did to sort of help children to catch up. And we see that despite the fact that you may have a very uh, uh, a, a big learning deficit, and I'm talking about pre-COVID times, it is possible if you change the methods that you use for teaching to be able to really bring children up, at least on the foundational learning skills quite quickly. Um, the method that uh, we have been using as Pratham in large parts uh, of India 
uh, and that has been evaluated quite rigorously uh, many times by um, the JPAL, the Poverty Action Lab at MIT, shows that if you really start at the level of the child as opposed to the level of the curriculum and you are able to use some very simple methodologies, you, you can bring about a significant and a substantial change uh, in, in children's uh, learning levels. So uh, I make that point because I think we're going to need a lot of insights and I, I think uh, slightly different ways of thinking when schools reopen. And I want to make the case that it should be possible if we focus on kind of catch up, on building back better, on ensuring broad set of foundational skills in place. I think even after schools being closed for over a year, as countries, as contexts, as schools, and as families, we should be able to work on ensuring the children go to school and they pick up and begin to learn well simultaneously. So let me stop there. I know we have a lot more to talk about. Great, thank you, Rukmini. Um, I wonder if you could just say uh, very briefly, what um, have you seen as most critical in terms of the variation of um, learning outcomes across different states? So I, th I think, you know, there's a huge uh, variation, obviously, in India on family background. I mean, there are states in India who have had parents' education, you know, double, triple those in other parts of the country. So I think home help, family help uh, obviously plays a big role. I think that the stance that different governments take to how important it is to ensure equity, and by equity, I mean not just everybody being in school, but everybody having a fighting chance at least to progress more uh, within the education system. So I think commitment to ensuring that no child is left behind also varies considerably. So we have seen different state governments at different points in time, uh, almost I would say taking time out to say that you sometimes need to slow down before you can accelerate and that I need that we need to get kids, you know, every kid learning at least at a basic level. Uh, and you know some of this teaching at the right level that I that uh, that I'm talking about actually doesn't need too many extra resources, but it needs a significant restructuring within your primary grades to actually group across levels and other things that I think you have to have the political and the kind of the academic commitment to do, and that comes from when you don't want to leave anybody behind. And so I we see a big difference between those who feel compelled to follow a grade level linear progression through the system uh, and those who feel like you need to stop and do something different uh, you know as i said even 20 years ago 15 years ago we had pretty high primary completion rates so that's the other just the one more thing i would like to say is how much do you focus on consistent attendance because this chronic absenteeism you know, hides, uh, you know, enrollment rates don't tell you who's coming to school every day. And I had a great definition of enrollment from a kid in uh, a rural school when I asked what the word for enrollment that was written on the blackboard, what it meant. It's a difficult word in Hindi. And the kid said, it means my name has come to school, but I come sometimes. So I think that if you have to, if you have to have, you know, what we really mean by, you know, good learning, uh, good attendance, you know, you can't just look at enrollment, you have to look at some of these daily features as well. Great, thanks, Rukmini. 
Um, I want to turn back to Shem. Um, I think just as we were asking you to reflect a, a bit on um, some of the findings and how that resonated with the experience in Africa, you'd, you'd um, been kicked out, but um, please do come in now and, um, and let us know some of your thoughts. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I hope you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yes, no problem. Go ahead. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Yes, um, and thank you for the great uh, report, the research report. I think for Africa, some two or three things resonate. Uh, the first one is anchoring the policy on free universal primary education into law. So this really helped to expand access in many of the African countries. But of course, uh, the issue of quality, quality suffered, and this is something that we are trying to deal with. The other one is the, the value of political environment. We, our experience is that when we identify champions at the level of ministers and at the level of heads of state, they help to really push those decisions that are difficult to make. And so we have realized that we need to have many of the education champions. Of course, we have the challenge that because of changes in government and cabinet, some of these things have to, to be a moving target. The other one is with respect to quality and relevance. It is true, especially also for Africa, that uh, teacher preparation, curriculum change, especially when we are moving towards um, competency-based curriculum, are really issues that resonate well in improving uh, uh, learning outcomes. But for Africa also, the issue of focusing on vocational skills development, this has also really opened up, you know, the, the, the schooling and especially the skills provision, especially for the youth, so that a lot of youth are now gaining skills and are able to look for employment. So what are some of the challenges that are specific to Africa? I think the, the big challenge is exclusion. We have realized this when we engaged with the countries during the COVID-19, uh, when it arrived, and we are seeing how countries were managing to keep education going. And despite the provisions that were there, many of the learners were left out. So exclusion really remains a big, big issue. And this is why also we, we, have, we are involved in a KICS observatory, an observatory that looks at the responses to COVID-19, especially for the education sector, in terms of policies and practices. And we realize that exclusion is a major, major issue and is still coming out, even despite, uh, even with the reopening of the schools. And I particularly would like to mention, I think, two, two initiatives that are currently ongoing. At the continental level, the SDGs and the Continental Education Strategy for Africa under the African Union are initiating a benchmarking indicator process, which is going to track and monitor seven indicators for, for African countries to be able to report on these two uh, blueprints, that is the CESA and also the SDGs. And one of the seven indicators is actually focusing on literacy in reading and also mathematics at the primary and secondary level. So you can see that this really brings into the fore the issue of, of, of foundational learning. The second one is um, a partnership that ADEA and the Global Education Monitoring Report is engaging in around uh, developing a, what we call spotlight series reports for Africa. And this is really going to focus 
a lot on, on, on foundational learning, looking at completion rates. So this is really a, a major issue for, for Africa. The second one, of course, is uh, we still have issues with teacher training and how to revalorize the teaching profession so that we can retain good and quality teachers. And of course, COVID-19 has exacerbated this particular challenge. The third one is the learning poverty. We know that we are still struggling to move the needle on foundational literacy and numeracy, as I've already enumerated above. Now, in terms of preparing the youth for the world of work, this remains a challenge. And we are trying to see how Africa can reform its secondary education system to be able to better prepare uh, the youth for the world of work. And uh, a study by Mastercard really brought a lot of recommendations. And as ADEA, what we have done is to establish what we call an inter-country quality node on secondary education to move that process forward. Also, repackaging of vocational training and skills development for Africa so that it is also not seen as really a, a, a sort of like a, a challenge area where only failures go to. It should be seen as sort of like the first option for many of the graduates so that it can really uh, improve on, on, on employment and also uh, you know, build, getting the, the skills uh, for the labor market. So what needs to be prioritized uh, for those who are left behind? I think there's a growing uh, population of out of school youth and children. And I believe that there's need to really put in measures that can bring back some of those, those, those children and youth back to school. There were previously second chance programs that were abandoned when COVID came. And also uh, programs that attract learners such as school feeding. So these programs need to be brought back so that we can attract more learners back to school. There is also the issue of, 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 of uh, you know, focusing on the most marginalized. I think this is a priority. And as at, as at there, we are trying to see how we can support countries with guides to be able to strengthen remote education so that we have a hybrid approach to education, education systems in Africa. So in short, this would be my reaction to, to your question. Back to you. Great, thank you, Shem. Um, and I think some of the, the work that you're currently doing around monitoring um, will be so useful in order to, to have stronger um, education data going forward. I'm gonna turn now to Matt, and I'm wondering if given, given your expertise in global education strategies, if you could speak a bit to what you've heard in the paper that, that resonates as you look across countries, and particularly um, if you could comment on the role of international actors, um, where some of the findings were a little bit more circumspect, um, what can they do alongside national actors? Matt. Thanks, Suzanne, and I'm delighted to be here in this uh, great panel to discuss this important topic. And huge kudos to the to the author of this paper. I uh, I really enjoy reading it, and uh, I think it's a really great piece. Um, to answer your question, maybe three points. Um, first, uh, and I think it was for both the international actors and the national governments uh, as. Shem or Rukmini mentioned previously, I think, of course, targeting as much as possible those that were not lucky to be born in an easy place uh, is definitely something that uh, 
was being considered when we want to have equity uh, in terms of access, completion, and learning. And of course, we can speak about the school feeding program that uh, Shem was mention, mentioning. Of course, the teaching at the right level program, Trukmini is a champion of and, and, and rightly. Uh, cash transfer program. So all those things targeting a specific groups. I was happy to see in the report that there is uh, children with disabilities are on the radar of many governments, apparently with a lot of discussion in the education policy about it. Um, I still feel that we are missing a lot about them, like uh, there is still very, very scarce data about them, but the different types of uh, uh, disabilities, for example, the, of course, the visible one are easier, but there are a lot of disabilities that are invisible. And I still feel that there are most of the time invisible children, both in the data, in the sector planning of the Ministry of Education and in their implementation. So. That's something I would I would really uh, advocate always for. Uh, actually, last week, oh yeah, last week there was this uh, new guidelines uh, released by uh, UNESCO, UNICEF, uh, GP, and FCDO for analyzing um, different theme uh, of education sector, including how to have how to analyze better. Uh, our system is or not inclusive for children with disabilities. So I really encourage everybody to, to, to use it. Now, the question of equity is not only a question of targeting the groups, the marginalized group. I think it is, it is also a question of uh, system, uh, including the way the resources are used. I mean, your report is uh, showing some good association between the money put in education and the results, at least in terms of primary completion rate. But I think we could go a bit further and look at trade-offs. There is trade-off in all countries, in particular in low-income countries where budgets are severely constrained. And spending X percent in each level of education is not neutral in terms of equity. Uh, I'm a big advocate of what uh, has been uh, set up and spelled out by the International Commission for Financing Opportunities, the Education Commission, the progressive universalism uh, thing. I believe both the international actors and the uh, national governments are sometimes not spending still enough on pre-primary and primary and foundational learning overall. Uh, when you look at the data, when you look at uh, where countries that are lagging the most behind in terms of pre-primary and primary, what is spent on pre-primary and primary, it's far below what more advanced countries were spending at the time they were at the same level of lack of completion, basically, and in particular on pre-primary education. I mean, African countries, you have many countries where the enrollment rate for pre-primary is below 5%. The international donors, uh, if you look at education aid, less than 1% goes to pre-primary education. So that's something I wanted to share. Two other points quickly. One, I liked in the report in the report a lot, the idea of the positive deviance approach, looking at the different countries and trying to find out uh, which countries have advanced the most and finding out the factors that drive that. I feel a bit like Rukmini who mentioned before about the disparities within countries across states of India. We can go even further. Uh, uh, in all the countries we have been working on, we see also a lot of disparities and difference 
of performance of schools within even a single state or within a single district. And we all know, thanks to the great work of the World Bank, UNESCO, UNICEF, now we have a, an awareness of the learning poverty with nine out of 10 uh, children in low-income countries not able to read a simple text by the age of 10. Um, but we know also that even in the most difficult context, there are some schools that are able to, to, to perform in a way that kids are learning, including in very difficult contexts. So something that is important to do, and that's something we do with our program called Data Must Speak, is really to find out those schools, those schools that are within a single country, performing better in terms of learning outcomes, in terms of completion, drop retention of the kids, compared to the schools that are in the same difficult context, and finding out what are the behaviors and practices that are in those schools that are not in the school in similar context. And I believe strongly about that. It's a kind of change of paradigm. It's not like coming with a specific intervention, donor-driven, supply-driven, just looking at what exists already, because in what exists already done by Ministry of Education, in particular by some school, school managers and, 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 and teachers, there are some things working and we don't analyze them enough and we don't use them enough as example to be followed and incentivized for the school's performing less. And the last point I want to raise is actually related in some way to that, is something I've been starting working on recently and I will work more on for sure in the coming months and years. It relates to the gender and, and, and teachers, gender and schoolmaster. I'm sure some of you have read the recent report of PASEC that was released last year, end of last year. One of the key findings of the PASEC report, which look at the learning uh, outcomes in uh, Francophone countries, is that when a woman is actually the head teacher, when a woman is a schoolmaster, overall, all the, all the things equal, uh, kids are learning more. So it's really interesting, and we have with the Data Mespeak initiative I was mentioning before, similar results happening in Laos and in another program we are working on in Mozambique, similar results like when a woman is a schoolmaster, uh, kids are learning more and dropping, dropping out less, to come back to the topic of retention and completion rate. So of course, we are talking about a, a space that is, I think, unexplored. There's a lot of research on gender and teachers, there's a lot of research on gender and CEOs and MPs, but not much at this level, school leadership and gender. So that's something I think it is more both programmatically, because in particular in Africa, the percentage of uh, school masters that are women is so low. So there is, of course, a programmatic uh, element of that, but also a research perspective. What the women are doing when they are schoolmasters than the men are not doing that is potentially very helpful for improving, of course, not only uh, primary competition right, but also proper. Uh, Sorry, I was a bit long, but I'm moving now. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Matt. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, you know, you talked about progressive universalism and, and that as an important approach um, the role of pre-primary education, some of the, the differences from a gender perspective and the importance of, of both um, girls' education, but also um, women's leadership in education. There's a lot there. And I think if you if we look back at elements that, that others of the panel said, um, and we look at our paper, 
it's clear that there's such complexity in terms of progress and such um, different elements that really um, are driving forward in, in uh, progress in different locations. There's a, there's a debate right now in the sector um, around pathways to progress on education. And, and some folks are calling um, very specifically for a, a more of a laser focus on, on foundational learning. Um, and I'm wondering um, what what some of your views on these debates are. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if I can turn particularly to Rukmini around this debate around a more singular focus um, versus a, a, a complexity approach um, in, term, in um, education progress. Rukmini. Um, so I do think that, and I'm particularly conscious of the fact that we need to think very hard about what we need to do next. Uh, we've had a long history of education. We've done many things, uh, but what is it that we're going to need to do as soon as we are able to actually uh, open schools or in countries where schools have opened, what is the high priority? And clearly building the foundations in many countries, the foundations were weak to begin with uh, in men, in some day. And then for some families, for some children, they may have become weaker, but building back the foundations well taking our time over it, I think, is very high priority. Now, if you are going to do that, then how does the system align to get that happen? Because I think if the main purpose, if the main objective, let's say for the next six months, is to ensure that all children come back to school and are well equipped with foundations, then we need to uh, change almost everything that we do in our normal schools. And we need to think about how do we prepare teachers as well as families to support this goal. So to me, I think a single laser focus like this foundational learning is important for aligning all other pieces of the education system to be in support of achieving this goal and to assist families, teachers, and those above the teacher level to be able to uh, do the right thing. Um, in my mind, and actually my experience is only from India, I feel that the curriculums often get in the way of real learning. Because if you have a very large section of children, and if I take some of our you know, uh, states which are the educationally most backward, you may have 80 or 90% children in any grade who are several grade years behind where they need to be. And therefore proceeding on an age grade curriculum as the main uh, goal of the whole school year, uh, you know, is designed to leave behind, you know, almost everybody. So if the, 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 you know, again, I go back to the fact that if you are going to focus on foundational learning, the place to start is to see where each child is at, start them from the level at which they are, move them up, have a goal that everybody understands, including parents who may not have much education, and align the system to achieving that. If a system gets aligned to knowing how to help every child, I think any other further step beyond foundations that we do will be designed in the same way. So let us have school systems which are teaching children rather than teaching curriculum. Thanks, Rukmini. Um, so, so your uh, your um, perspective on this is to really um, embed down and have that strong focus on foundational learning, um, but alongside other um, other elements. 
Um, one of the things that was really interesting in the paper for me um, that was emerging was the the analysis that showed um, the key role of a, a girl's education focus. And um, I'm wondering, Jose Manuel, if you can talk a little bit more about that and the the, the strength of causality, the strength of the association that we saw there, but also um, some of your perspective on um, what that means in terms of the lack of attention to other groups and um, what can be done to, to really reach those that are more marginalized. Um, and if you can keep try to keep um, your intervention um, fairly brief so we can move on to other questions as well. Right, thank you, Susan. So maybe what I, I, I relate this with the both comment of uh, some of the panelists about the need of equity and, and uh, focus on children that are left behind. And there was, of, of, of course, also the, the, the comment about um, big challenge of exclusion. And so what, what the analysis shows, what the, the data we have shows is that um, there was a, a big focus on girls in many of the countries. But interestingly, it comes from the regression analysis we ran. It comes that uh, those that focus more on girls, especially in certain type of policies, for example, providing a scholarship, then led to, um, it was significant. So it was leading those countries that focus more on girls were achieving much faster progress among the countries that were already achieving fast progress. So there's, there's something there uh, that we can learn from the past um, on, on what is possible. And, and perhaps, Relating this with the question on, on exclusion more broadly and other groups that are excluded and that are going to be the last mile and, and that are a greater risk of being left behind. So, uh, you know, I think, I think we should go to the, the, the political economy and the discussion that led to girls having such a central uh, point. And is that, you know, in countries, there was a deliberation in countries and a deliberation also internationally that put a lot of emphasis on girls. And that led to a consensus. It led also a, a range of policies that were implemented, but it led to a consensus that that actually uh, meant an, a real push in, in, in practice. And so when we come to other excluded groups, whether those are you know remote areas and those are... Uh, children with disabilities, or we're talking about uh, different ethnic group or linguistic groups that are in some way excluded and, and facing more uh, greater deprivation and, and access to education, then there's, an, there's a need to have that public deliberation as well, to have that discussion that would then allow to be able to reprioritize resources on how to respond to the, to the challenge. And so I think we need to learn from the success of uh, reducing gender inequality on how we can also achieve uh, equal, uh, really positive outcomes in reducing other type of inequalities. Um, thanks, Jose Manuel. Um, another question uh, really about some of the, the fundamentals of the research and what it means um, looking forward. I'm, Matt, I wanted to ask you about um, this kind of research and, and if it was being done in 10 years time, 
what kinds of factors um, do you think would look different around what's really driving progress? Um, and what kinds of things um, in particular, as we look at COVID recovery, maybe where um, attention needs to be paid that, that's new and different from, from the last 20 years? Thank you, Susan. And I will try to be shorter than before. Um, I think the difference is that COVID happened. And what we saw with COVID is that actually, unfortunately, it exacerbated the ex pre-existing disparities. And of course, it li it's linked to, uh, to different factors. And I will come back to the digital divide and what we know from the research uh, on digital learning in general. But first, just coming back to Africa, I'm sure Shame would have the same numbers as I do. Uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, less than half the population has electricity. So leave alone uh, connectivity. And when you look at the trend, uh, we are winning less than one percentage point every year. So if the trend is not speed up, it means that we will have universal access to electricity in Sub-Saharan Africa only in 2081, in 60 years. And I'm not sure we can wait for that. So that's one of the key requests we have in our policy brief for the G20, for example, uh, including for the education and ministerial meeting that's happening uh, later this month. Uh, and of course, it's not the end of the story. Uh, uh, because of COVID and even pre-COVID, of course, the movement towards uh, a tech that you know very well for being uh, a director of research at Tech Hub is anyway going on. And what we know uh, in this regard more and more is that the tools, the software is only part of the story. In order to be effective, uh, the elements should be there in terms of uh, learning through digital learning. We should have, like there is more and more and more, more and more evidence that blended learning still with a role with teachers that needs to be trained about, by the way, is so important and it's usually more effective than just the tool himself. Uh, of course, also paying attention to uh, coming back to the equity piece that the tools can work also offline. There are so many places where the connectivity is not there. So having modalities of those platform and tools working offline, like the Achilles platform and the learning passport, for example, is a good thing. And, and one thing that is key that we see more and more that links to research is all the thing related to implementation research. Uh, related to uh, also including embedding within those platforms uh, a strong m &E system, monitoring and evaluation system with feedback loops. Uh, the Achelius program, for example, is brilliant about that because the teachers, the students are on an almost daily, weekly basis providing feedback in order to adapt the platform, adapt the modalities, adapt the, even the, the, the structure of the, of the software in a, in a way to improve it as it is run, implemented. I said that would be shorter, I'm not sure I was. We'll go back to you soon. Okay, thanks, Matt. Um, a number of good, uh, good examples there of, of some of the things that need to be done differently, the features that may be different um, going forward. Um, I want to turn to some of the, the Q&A that we've received from the audience now. And I'm going to start with a question from Michelle Kaffenberger, who um, is working with the RISE program. Um, and Shem, I'm wondering if you can respond to this question. Michelle's question is, 
about um, some findings from a recent paper that they've done at, in the RISE program showing that low learning is a key driver of children dropping out of school. Um, and what role do you see in, in efforts to improve learning um, in improve, improving as well completion? Shem, and if you can be fairly brief. Shem, um, I'm not sure if you're you're hearing us. I think you've frozen. Um, would anyone else like to respond to to that question around the link between um, low learning and and dropouts as a barrier to completion? Moisa, why don't you come in on that? And and what kinds of things did we see from the study? I'm wondering if you could, Moisa, also respond to a question that we received from from Bart Kleinedieters, um, and he's asking, when talking about free primary education, does that um, only link to tuition fees or does it include things like school books, uniforms, and parental contributions? Right, hi. So um, I think just on, I think that's Bart's question was, uh, um, so the free primary education that we looked at was about often did accompany free textbook provision, not always, but had that in place. And as you said, we noticed that it was more important than making education compulsory. So there was definitely a cost element to it. What we weren't really able to establish, and I think I, I, I'm not entirely clear how we'd be able to do that, is whether what the timing was of free education and household barrier strategies. I think that would a link if we could establish there would be really interesting and key to kind of answering that question. Um, I think, uh, Bart, did you have, uh, did Bart also have a question about um, starting points? I think, sorry, I think I had two questions from Bart, but that's absolutely fine. Um, Shem, do you want to go ahead about the the link between learning? Shem, I think, um, take yourself off mute. Try that. Okay, it's still not working. Um, I'm gonna move on to uh, another question, Shem, maybe we can still come back to you on that. But um, Jose Manuel, there's been a couple of questions in the chat um, that, uh, that I'm wondering if you can respond to from the research perspective. One is from Ben Durbin of um, NFER. Um, did you find any evidence on what the direction of causality was, if any, for association between growth in private provision and increase in PCR? Um, and the other question I'm wondering if you can respond to is from Keith Lewin. Um, increased PCR associated with high economic growth, um, as is enrollment in private schools. How do the significant associations change um, when there's control for economic growth rates? And you know, clearly we didn't do that in the research, but I'm wondering if you can comment um, around those links, Jose Manuel. Great. So, <clears throat> so first, first I think the, the answer to Keith. So yes, we control by GDP growth, both by GDP levels at the initial level and growth. And in fact, we we look at different different control variables related to the state of say state of development of the country so for example we look at gdp but we look at urbanization level of urbanization of the country so for example you may expect that the least urbanized the country is the harder it is to expand coverage 
because it's more spread out. And so we were controlled by some of these, uh, um, you know, variables. And uh, still, the, the the initial level still uh, was significant. And it's important just to also mention that the way we measure the progress, we were measuring as a shortfall. So we were, this is explained in the paper, but we were using a metric that was trying to penalize less the country that starts from a low level and actually trying to, uh, countries that are starting at a much higher level um, could still show progress because it was sure fall to, a, to the to the 100%, which is the coverage. And then, uh, so, so the metric in a way was trying to help not to have a, a, a blind spot on those that were already starting from a higher point. So we were controlled for these different things in the paper and, and still the, the, the initial level mattered. But it makes sense, you know, the finding makes sense because some of those at a very low initial level had 50% coverage or completion rate. So when you have 50% completion rate, the the challenge you have ahead is so paramount in terms of expanding completion, expanding coverage and, and expanding and expanding completion that um, well uh, you know you you are you are able to make greater progress and those at the top, the ones that are closer to reach hundred uh, percent, the extra marginal cost of reaching some the one that are, are missing is greater as well. Uh, and we discussed some of this in the paper. The other point was about the direction on, um, it was in primary completion, primary um, private uh, schooling. And so we don't we don't look at relation because it's not what, you know, the model doesn't allow us and, and the data doesn't allow us to see that so much. But what we do in the report is to look at, we were looking at the, leg, at, at the re regulatory environment. And so, the regulatory in terms, for example, making primary free or compulsory and stimulating more private investment. And what we find is that in, in two thirds of the countries, uh, the uptake of private, private provision increased. So there's something going on there. Um, and of course, some were starting from a very, very low level. And those matters slightly the most. So in uh, in the paper we we look at group of countries and and we find a group of fifteen countries of the twenty eight that uh, increase significantly uh, primary completion. Um, sorry, uh, enrollment in private education, and they uh, also had you know make compulsory primary and free primary. And, and the list is there. I can just mention it here briefly, but it's Burkina Faso, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Ghana, Iran, Cambodia, Laos, Lesotho, Morocco, Madagascar, and so on. And so those countries are the ones that expand. Now, when we include, it's just important to say, when we include increasing of uh, primary education, the enrollment in primary education in the regression, it doesn't come significant. And what that means is that it wasn't, a factor that made a country in our sample faster, even though it was happening, of course, quite, quite, um, quite a lot in the 28 countries. Thanks, Jose Manuel. Um, and yes, I encourage uh, those of you who want to delve in deeper to to this and the analysis to take a look at the paper. Um, Shem, I think we're going to try to come back to you uh, once again on on this question around the the link um, between low learning 
and um, issues of, of dropout and completion. Um, alongside that, if you're able, we've got an, another question about the nature of foundational learning that's from Susan Durston, um, who highlights the fact that um, social emotional learning um, is often seen as an, an add-on subject. Um, and um, wondering what your views are um, in terms of that being built in really around foundational learning. So I'm wondering if you can do a combined answer to, to those two elements. Uh, thank you very much. I think what I wanted to say is that, uh, yes, uh, low learning could contribute, you know, to some of the learners leaving school at the instigation of the parents or caregivers. But I think in some of the countries in Africa, there are other nuances to that. Uh, for the low-income group, for example, it could actually mean that uh, the cost of schooling is still not enabling many of the households to take their children to school. Because although I mentioned earlier that there's universal primary education, for example, but you do have add-on costs for desks, uniforms, et cetera, et cetera, and some of the low-income group parents cannot manage this. There are also issues around school feeding, as we mentioned. You could find that in schools, especially in marginalized areas where there's no school feeding program, learners or kids would not go to school because there's no incentive. Then, of course, there's also the issue of, of uh, pregnancies. There are policies still existing of countries which do not allow girls back into school after they, they fall pregnant, and this is an issue. Then on the issue of early marriages, there, there, there are also cultural aspects to this. It's not so much necessarily low learning, but it's so much uh, in, in certain cultural aspects where girls are being forced into early marriages, even though they really wanted to go to school. So yes, uh, low learning is most likely, improving learning is most likely to, to, to improve uh, completion rate, yes, but there are also other areas. I think the other question on socio-emotional learning as part of, of uh, come again on that question. Um, it's uh, it's fit within some the curriculum and um, as part of foundational learning. Yes, I think it's, it, it would be a great idea because what we are seeing, especially with COVID and where uh, socio-emotional systems for learners went missing because schools were closed, was that learners had nowhere else to go. And therefore, maybe it's good to see how to incorporate this particular aspect into the curriculum so that proper systems are put in place. So I, I would agree with that, with that comment. Thank you. Thanks, Shem. Um, we're going to now turn to um, a, a last question. Um, as we timed this uh, research to release this research um, just prior to the G20 education ministers meeting. And I'm wondering if I could ask each panelist, just as, as a way of wrap up, if you could highlight what you think the most important thing um, that needs to be prioritized uh, as part of um, the, the minister's call to action um, to advance education and learning, especially in light of COVID. And Matt, I'm gonna ask you to go first. I will do two quickly. One is investing uh, much more on pre-primary education because that's also where there is actually the development of the social emotional learning that Susan Durston was talking about. And it's really the under-invested under uh, 
subsector and with so big rates of return, both for the future of learning and for other things. And the second is, of course, in Africa, let's push for having the donors, the rich countries to support uh, electrification because without it, we will just keep on exacerbating disparities. Over. Thanks, Matt. Um, Rukmini, what would be your response uh, to that question for G20 ministers? I think we should recognize that we are in a special moment in the history of uh, education. Uh, there are changes that we should have done long ago if we really want every child to be in school and learning well. And I think the opportunity, we've had a punctuation mark in the journey. This is the time to really think about what is it that we really want for our kids. I see two major priorities. There is a very large number of kids who will be coming into school, maybe in second grade, maybe in third grade today, who have had no preschooling or no schooling. You cannot give them a second or a third grade curriculum. You have to start afresh. You have to build a whole set of readiness skills. I think foundational skills are very narrowly defined. They include a whole set of uh, not only uh, academic skills, but ways to acquire them, which to me includes all kinds of things that you do in groups and so on. So I think there is a, a, a big push that needs to happen to get kids ready for school and not just at preschool level, pretty much all the way through early grades. And the second big push for this year and next has to be on catch up. I think these are the two things and you have to treat the moment as, a, as an opportunity for doing a lot of things that we should have done you know, many years ago. Thanks, Rukmini. Shem, what would be one thing you would prioritize? I think much as the study had indicated that uh, the infrastructure improvement does not necessarily have a positive uh, correlation with the learning outcomes, but for African countries, the issue of exclusion is real. And my uh, recommendation would, would be that governments embrace more innovatively um, digital technology to improve on infrastructure, especially for the marginalized areas. So that, because you, if you can't access education, you can't talk about quality. So I think for me, that would be my single most important. And also the second one is really bringing more, finding creative ways of involving uh, parents and families in their children's learning. That really would be my the second one. Thank you. Thanks, Shem. Jose Manuel, what would be one thing you prioritize? Well, I think I think it comes down to the issue of equity. So it's bring the lens, the, the SDG framework, really clearly have this fantastic commitment and leave no one behind. And I think bringing that to the center of the policy is very important as well. And it's is not free of challenge because some of the marginalization that certain children experience are rooted in very complicated causes um, and are sometimes difficult to discuss even and acknowledge in certain contexts. So I think that's something that policymakers need to be uh, yes, bring to the center of the discussion, feel less uh, you know worried about the potential difficulties of, of, of having that conversation and then orienting the funding and resources to those more marginalized. And Moisa, a very brief um, last word. Sure, two, I think two quick things. One is a very quick win, um, just abolish registration requirements for children. 
don't understand why children need to show what their birth certificate is, what's happening. I feel like it should be any other public service. You can walk in and if you're a resident in the area or living in the area, you shouldn't be allowed to be educated. Even more clearly so as internal displacement continues and we can see that happening. And secondly, recognizing, I think COVID has made us do that, that schools are more than just a venue of very academic learning. There are support mechanisms, particularly for children in very complex, vulnerable situations, orphans, um, street connected children. So recognizing that and bringing in, as our panelists said, SEL, ECE, improving readiness to learn by recognizing a school is more than just books and academic teaching. Thanks, Moisa. Um, and thank you to all of the panelists. Um, thank you to all of um, those of you who have been following online and, and for those of you who've raised questions um, through the, the Q&A um, and, and comments function. Um, there really is um, a one-time opportunity um, at this point, and, and um, we want to advocate for G20 um, ministers and, and governments to take this up, but um, everyone around the world to really look at uh, changes in approach and, and responding to um, the kinds of disruptors that have been there um, just naturally because of the COVID epidemic. Um, a huge thank you to um, Moisa, Jose Manuel, and the other authors of the report. Um, it can now be found on the ODI website, and the link, I believe, should be available in the chat. If not, um, you can easily find it online. Um, a recording of the event will be available in a couple days and accessible on the event webpage. Um, thank you, everyone, um, and best of, of the rest of the day. Thank you.